0: It is a joy to be with you today, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 8 for us. We're jumping in the middle of Paul's first letter to this little church in Thessalonica, and it's uh, largely going well, but there are some bumps in the road, and to uh, deal with some of the rumors about him, he writes this first letter to them. It says this, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Just a brief prayer. Well, gracious God, as we uh, look to these verses together very purposefully, so we uh, ask, because we need it, that what we know not, that ultimately you would please teach us. That what we have not, that you would please grant us and that what we are not, that you would please make us. It's for your glory and our good that we ask these things, amen. It was in the third year of my life, uh, I checked on this this past week, that uh, Pastor Brian Spencer uh, became the senior pastor here and he remained here as pastor well until after I graduated from college. Which, uh, as I reflected upon that, means that for all intent and purposes, he was a pastor to me for some 20 years. And I'm grateful for it. Like many of you, I mourned his passing uh, just a few months ago as I tuned in online and heard the encouraging things that were said about him. So you mourn, but you also can't help but be glad for uh, his faithfulness, for his usefulness, and for the ways that uh, he touched on uh, many of our lives. At some point, I learned along the way that he was fond of using a red pen in correspondence, and I've taken that practice for myself as just a little nod of gratitude for his influence on my life. He, of course, was uh, not perfect, uh, which of us is. He wasn't perfect, but he was persevering. He was faithful, and he was fruitful. Similarly, so uh, Don Jackson became the youth pastor here as I was entering into middle school, and he too stayed for a long time. In fact, it, he was my on-site mentor for uh, my college internship one of these summers that I uh, kicked around here in a room. And interestingly enough, in the way these things come about, PD was a speaker at Camp Barakale this past summer when uh, two of my boys, one in middle school and one in high school, were there to hear him uh, speak. And now it all comes full circle. I mentioned both Brian and Don uh, because for me, Uh, These are two men that embody pastoral longevity. And uh, you who have been here for a time know that we could easily add to this list Tom Townsend, who served here for a decade. And what you may not recognize is this, is that it's not unheard of, but but it is unusual for a local church like yourself to have those who give themselves in pastoral ministry to stay for a good stretch of time. And this is what you've enjoyed now for a few decades steady pastoral leadership. Even presently, you've had the fairly recent addition of, present to the, of Preston to the pastoral team, but uh, you've benefited from John's tenured leadership. But now, of course, elephant in the room, here you are in this season of what we, may, what we might call a prayerful pause as you prepare to call the next senior pastor. And that's what I've been thinking about and praying for you periodically. But I was thinking about you this week because I said, well, you have to be full of questions, right? I wonder what he'll be like. How old will he be? Will he be funny? Will he be caring? Will he enjoy the same hobbies that I do? And of course, those are the things that we wonder about. But really, those, those are secondary matters of interest. Uh, pastoral personalities and interests are as various as our shoe sizes, so you go, let's not get overly enamored by that. Because uh, what we want to be more concerned about as Christians actually has to do with the, with the inner life of the man who will lead you. It's not so much uh, as the kids like to say, does he have mad skills? No, does he have godly character? Not is he cool, but, but is he kind? Not is he awesome, but is he humble? Character is far more important than skillfulness in Christian leadership. That's what you see when you look up the list in First Timothy uh, three and Titus. First Timothy three and Titus one, the layout for us, the pastoral qualifications that must be met in order for someone to serve as an elder, as a pastor in a local church. When you look at those things, you discover that it largely has to do with a person's character, who they are on the inside. Because those who are going to be shepherds to God's people are actually to reflect Jesus, who himself is the good shepherd. We will always be a dim representation of him. But in more ways than not, we better be at least be someone who who mirrors his likeness. And that's why I've landed on these verses here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because the Apostle Paul reminds a group of Christians of the ways in which he pastored them. And in doing so, he sets the pattern for others who follow like him in pastoral leadership. Uh, You could make your way all the way through the entire chapter. And if you do so, at least by my observation, I I come up with uh, nine qualities of pastoral leadership. But uh, my dad's making hamburgers for lunch. So I'm only going to do three of these things because I'm hungry and I figured you'd appreciate it too. So in the time we have, my aim is to connect the dots from paul's ministry approach to this unique season that you find yourselves in and give you three ways to pray for pastors for the ones that you have and the one who is yet to come now i can't give us all the background for what's going on in first thessalonians so just briefly to help us get our bearings i'll mention that paul and his ministry partners the apostles these church planting missionaries are in a position where they are actually having their christian integrity attacked by people who still live in Macedonia. It's difficult to piece together all the drama that's represented here, but it seems that uh, the reputations of Paul, Sylvanius and Timothy uh, have come under fire after they helped uh, start this new church in Thessalonica. So shortly after its start, they were forced to uh, make a premature departure because of uh, opposition. And in their absence, opponents of the new church plant who perhaps were jealous of its successes and of its influence, started making slanderous statements about the three leaders who helped start it. And it's in the heat of we might say this, this Christian character smearing that Paul writes this letter to respond to these accusations. And in this letter, he, he refutes the false things that were being said about him by simply reminding the Christians in that place of, You know what we were like you know how we pastored you remember us not what these folks are saying about us he reminds them in this letter that they weren't con artists who were looking to make a dirty buck they were christian workers committed to caring for people uh, no matter what it cost them and it it cost them deeply Uh, this little chapter here it's a precious chapter because it gives us a glimpse into paul's pastoral heart for people And what I love about it is that he's not shy about saying, this is pretty difficult. And at the same time, we have reasons to be full of joy, which is why we will be unwavering in our commitment and on our calling. So all that is a ramp up to say in verses one and two, I'd like to help us see the first way in which he tells us something about the way that we are to pray for pastors. Uh, Number one, pray for them to be bold Bible teachers, Pray for them to be bold Bible teachers. That's the gist of verses one and two. He says, "For you yourselves know brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what's happening here is that Paul and his companions who have been traveling about the greater Mediterranean area uh, arrived in first century Macedonia, uh, not uh, as like church planting uh, superstars, but really as wounded workers. That's what's being alluded to in verse 1. He says, we've already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Philippi was the city that they had previously been in. And you can look it up for yourself in Acts, and you'll discover that there uh, they had a pretty rough departure because they were stripped, they were beaten, and they were thrown into prison, having been accused of causing an uprise in the city streets. Which, when you read the history for yourself, you go, actually, it's just because they were rather peacefully speaking to others about the Lord Jesus, but were met with opposition. And so their treatment in Philippi was not only painful, but it was also humiliating. They were stripped naked flogged in public in spite of their Roman citizenship, which should have been a means of protection to them. Yet, writes Paul, but these afflictions didn't stop us from courageously proclaiming the gospel, from boldly teaching the scriptures, no matter what happens to us. You see, people are prepared to suffer for what they deeply believe in. And and the scars that Paul had gotten in Philippi were in a strange way actually tokens of his genuineness. And despite the hostility, Paul and his friends were emboldened by God to keep on boldly teaching the Bible. And in this way, they, they set a pattern for others like them. Pastors are to be leaders in courageously proclaiming Jesus and all that he's given and done for us. We are to winsomely, and courageously teach all that God has given to us in the scriptures. The, the things which are encouraging to us. The, the things that are hard for us to hear, but necessary for us to hear. The things uh, that we like to hear and the things that are hard for us to hear. You see, when a pastor in his, is in his study, he isn't to like editorially select and delete and cut out and remove certain things and say, no, 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 no. He's, he's to teach the whole counsel of God. When I took my ordination vows, that was one of the things in which I committed to, to teach the whole counsel of God, to boldly teach all of the scriptures. And so I've said to people, uh, to, to the people that I serve, you know, at various times along these lines, that I will have disqualified myself from pastoral ministry if you start to sense a sleight of hand in the way that we approach the scriptures, you hear me sort of like dancing around saying, well, I know it says this, but really it doesn't mean that. It actually means this. I've said to them, then that's the point that you should push eject and send me out the door. If not, you might as well close the books on Parkside, Side, because it won't be long before we just wander right off into, into nothingness. We are to unapologetically proclaim Jesus and all that he's done for us in Christ and we are to do this with boldness. Boldness, but not obnoxiousness. To be winsomely courageous. And pastors are to take the lead in these things. Speaking of the virtue of, Christ, of, of courage, there's a fellow called Mark Howell who has this to say about courage. He said, courage is a missing ingredient in the lives of many Christians. Because of their fear of personal hardship, they rarely attempt anything bold or risky for Christ. Yet with great risk often comes great reward. You see what he's saying? Boldness isn't a virtue only for pastors, it is something that is to grow in the heart of every person who calls themselves a Christ follower. So you, you write to yourself Dear Lord, please give me boldness this week. Dear Lord, please give my pastors boldness. This week, with great risk, often comes great reward. Do you believe that to be so? Do you believe that the same God who gave Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy tenacity and stick to it will do the same in your life? You're probably not going to get physically abused for being a Christian in our day, but you may get canceled. You may get socially shunned. But do you know that those who suffer for Jesus are often deeply aware of his presence in their lives and a peace and a joy that comes along with it? It's the upside-down nature of Christianity that God brings us into meaningful depths with him, not through ease, but more often than not, through difficulty. It's tears not smiles that form the anvil in which solid joy in the Lord Jesus is forged. That's why we have this first point. Pray for pastors to be bold Bible teachers so that they might live in this joy and then lead those they care for in the same way. Secondly, pray for pastors to have God-pleasing motives. Three and four, verses 3 and 4. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to, de- to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Pray for pastors to have God-pleasing motives, which is a hard thing to sort out, right? Because you know as well as I do that motives are difficult to discern in ourselves, and we can often be uncertain about them and other people. I'm sure that you have had countless occasions where you have an interaction with someone and you're trying to assume the best about them. But you can't help thinking to yourself later on, was he being genuine in what he said and did or or was he angling for something? You say to yourself, well, what what did she mean by that? Was that some sort of uh, backhanded compliment that I just received there? Motives. They're difficult to discern in ourselves and even more difficult to sort out in others. But the sobering reality is that God knows if we are the real thing. He knows the motives behind what we do. He knows if we are genuine and true in what we say and do and mean. Which is why Paul turned his case over to God when it came to the defense of his reputation and intentions. As it is he who approve them to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul's saying, in effect, this, you may accuse me for this and that, but, but God knows that it isn't true. And I may not be able to convince you that that is so, but you know what I can do? I can be content that God knows who I am. His integrity is being questioned. His reputation is being smeared. But amazingly so, he wasn't undone by the gossiping that was being passed around about him. Because he knew that even though there's confusion now, in a day to come, it'll all get sorted out. God knows that he and his companions aren't using the platform of religion to gratify their own vanity, to line their own pockets, or to gain honor and influence. Apparently, Traveling teachers in the first century, they commonly use their, commonly use their influence as a, as a means, even at some times, for uh, sexual exploitation, or as it's more subtly put there in verse 3, for impurity. It's a sad statement, but we see that not much has changed our day, in our day, because you almost always hear in the narrative of, of cults that pop up or in a guru that gains a following about leaders who use their influence for exploitation— Paul is on the receiving end of this, and he says, not so with us. You know about us. We weren't peddling in the ministry for selfish gain or looking to leverage our role to take advantage of others. You see, ministry for Paul and his companions wasn't about them. They weren't trying to find their identity in their calling. They weren't intoxicated by the flattery of other people. They were willing to say difficult things and do difficult things even if they knew it was going to disappoint the people who were under their care if they sensed it was what was best for them as they led God's people. These pastors were committed to gospel ministry in the church out of a deep responsibility to God as they had been charged with the task of faithfully preaching the gospel. And with that responsibility, they did what they did with a deep awareness of being under the scrutiny of God who tested their hearts. It's a sobering passage if you are in pastoral ministry because it means that what we say and teach and lead and do must be done in a way so as not to please people, but to please the all-seeing God who knows us for what we really are. It's not about you. I once had a Someone that I know in pastoral ministry make a comment to one of my friends. He, he said that he was thinking about leaving the church from which he was serving in because, quotes, he needed a bigger stage. And when I heard him say that, I was deeply concerned for, for my friend because I, I said, well, if you say that you need a bigger stage, it sounds like maybe you're saying that you need more space for, for more of you. And I remember that something that one of my mentors had said to me. He said, hey, don't call this thing a stage called a platform he said because stages are for performers and platforms are for preachers so that the only reason you stand on the platform is just simply so that other can people can see you but not to make much of you and one of the great dangers in pastoral calling is to actually draw people to yourself and fall short in pointing people to the son of god who loved us and gave himself for us it is never a temptation that, that you get beyond. It always lurks at the heels. Therefore, pray for pastors to have God-pleasing motives. If you've ever done any reading in, in church history, there's a good chance that you've come across the name of a fellow called David Brainerd who lived some 300 years ago. I won't tell you all about his life other than to say that he was a a missionary to Native Americans and had a particularly fruitful time among the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. He was very much used by God as a Christian worker, but he ended up dying at the age of 29. And part of the the legacy of his ministry and life has to do with the fact that another fellow called Jonathan Edwards who himself was a famous American theologian and preacher, found David Brainerd's personal journals, and he was so touched and moved by them that he published them in book form. Interestingly so, since their first publication in 1749, they've never been out of print. I say all that just so I can give you one line from from Brainerd's journals. Uh, He says this some 300 years ago along these lines of of God-pleasing motives. He said, I wanted not the favor of man to lean upon, for I knew Christ's favor was infinitely better. I knew that Christ's favor was infinitely better. I think that's a natural extension of what we have here in verse four. So we speak not to please man, but to please God. David says, I've I've discovered what this is about because I've discovered that I wanted not the favor of man to lean upon because I was learning that Christ's favor was infinitely better. I am so intrigued by his declaration because the more I think about it, I think it means this. He was writing to himself in personal reflection and saying, I have made decisions in life with the longing to hear Jesus one day say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And in making this commitment to serve Jesus primarily, I have had my heart won over by the sense of the love that he has for me he'd encountered the favor of Jesus by choosing to do that, everyday things that pleased him. And he said, that's the best. But it means that David had to wrestle with moments when he wanted to please himself. And I think quite honestly, there had to be moments when he said, dear Lord, I, I want to do the right thing. but there's a part of me that wants to do other things because I know it'll work out best for me, but please change my heart. I'm weak, I'm needy, please help me." And as he discovered the sweetness of pleasing God, he became increasingly drawn in to believe that Christ's favor was infinitely better than anything else. That's one of the reasons that we want to pray for pastors to have God-pleasing motives so that they might routinely experience and know that Jesus is better than anything else, because when that happens, you will bear the fruitfulness of it all for yourselves. Thirdly, pray for pastors to have above-board practices. Above-board practices. Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Pray for pastors to have above-board practices. In many ways, this, this little prayer here is really just the other side of pastoring with God-pleasing motives. So I'll be exceedingly brief here because the lesson is simply this. Paul served the Christians in Thessalonica not with an eye for what he could get from them, but rather what he could give to them. So he didn't flatter his listeners in order to uh, fish money out of their wallets or for some other selfish gain. He says, no, God is our witness. We weren't pretending to serve you while really we're trying to build ourselves up here. Our practices were above board. Our character was above reproach. And he says, you just think how I was among you and you'll verify these things for yourself from our own experiences with you. And right there are three little ways to pray for pastors, for the ones that you have now, for the ones who, who will soon come. You pray for them on Monday. Please help them to be bold Bible teachers, to have God-pleasing motives, to, to have above-board practices in every way. Or you might say, uh, for them to, to lead courageously, to be kept free from dangerous desires, to, to joyfully serve the God who knows us through and through. Uh, those are the things for us right there. But of course, I look upon you, and I know that most of us in this room haven't been called to the, to the employment of, of being a pastor. So you go, all right, well, that's good. I'm glad to do that. But what else you got? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there's more to this passage for us in here. It stares right at us there, but it's a reminder to us that wherever we we minister, we might say in the broadest sense as Christians during the week, we are to make it our aim to please God in all that we do. You you can't let yourself off the hook and go, hey, help the pastor do the thing over there. You go, no, no." same for me, verse 4. I do what I do to make much of the Lord Jesus. You're to make it your aim to do that in the office this week, in your grandparenting, in your homemaking uh, responsibilities. I don't know, in the summer job that you've picked up and the integrity that you use and the way that you develop the contract for the client who is yours. The point is this, however you spend your time during the week, we are reminded that we are to make it our aim to please God in all that we do because God sees all, God knows all. And Paul and his companions, uh, they were saying, we know this to be true, and you know what? We're making it our aim to live for an audience of one. And they are an example to us all in this way. We don't, we don't speak to please people. We, we aren't interested in glory from other people. Well, I am sometimes, but I'm trying to turn away from that. We want to live for an audience of one. In the course of my studying for these verses, I came across a story from a fellow called W.A. Criswell. He was a pastor from another generation. He, he, he once told the story of a, of a train master who was responsible for the smooth operation of a busy depot in the heart of a, of a crowded city. One day, a passerby commends the the, the train master, for his skillfulness as he juggles all these responsibilities. He's answering people's questions, he's, he's keeping things uh, on schedule. And the fellow says to him, well, how do you do it? With so many people disgruntled and so many people angry, how do you maintain your composure? The train master replied, why, it's really no big deal. I don't have all these people to please. I, I just have one man to please and he pointed across the way to another building to the second floor and he said, behind that window over there was where my boss sits and he's the only one that I'm really concerned about. You see, friends, that little anecdote reminds us that that's the perspective that we want to have because there's nothing more liberating in life than to recognize that God is the only one that you and I must be concerned about pleasing. That outlook frees us from the tyranny of people-pleasing. That outlook gives us courage to do tough things. And here's the really, 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 really good news. Did you catch that? That was all very purposeful. I'm sure you know. Here's the really good gospel news. We make it our aim to please God already in the confidence that God is pleased with us through the redeeming work of his son, the Lord Jesus. Because it's in Christ that you are accepted. It's in Christ that you are kept. It's in Christ that you are loved. It's in Christ that the bounty of God's mercy flows down upon you every day and all of your messed up motives. It's entirely in Christ that you are invincibly, permanently, and irreversibly loved and kept in God's approval. And it's in the security of God's keeping love that you can say, I'm not quite who I wish to be, but I know you're doing a good work in me. I need more of it. It's in the security of God's keeping love that you can actually take the words of, of the psalmist for yourself, Psalm 139. You can take it for yourself at the end of today or at the end of the work week. And you can say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there be any anxious thoughts in me. And if there's any, any offensive way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting You see, this this is the reality of the Christian life. Uh, We make it our aim to live for an audience of one in the surety of Christ's love for us. But we say to God by his spirit, show me the ways in which I'm still living for myself. Show me the cycle that I keep going back into where I want the approval of others and, and change the cycle. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Change me. That's why you can take Psalm 139 as your own. Search me, Father God. Show me what needs to be transformed. It's a vulnerable prayer because you're laid bare and you're going, I know there's stuff inside of me, so please make the stuff that's inside of me apparent to me. You say, well, well, show me these things. Help me to see, why did I speak to her like that the other day? Why was I so angry when that person said that thing or did that thing to me? Show me. Psalm 139, it it makes you quite vulnerable. But at the same time, that type of prayer, search me, God, and know my heart, there's also this, this eagerness and this anticipation to it because search me and know me. And you can say that to God because you know he isn't out to brutalize you. You know he isn't out to crush you because you're kept safe and secure in Christ. He, in fact, wants to transform you And change you. The good physician says, there's a problem right here. Let my spirit get to work on these things. A wise fellow once said this about this sense of examination. He said, if the examination is solely a self-examination, we will always end up with either excessive praise or excessive blame. But under the searchlight of the great physician, the Lord Jesus, the shepherd of your soul, we can expect only good news always. And why can we expect only good always? Because in the Lord Jesus, we're confident that God will continue the work that He's begun in us, or as the psalmist says, he will take us to the best place, to the way everlasting. As God changes you, he will take you to the place where he will make you more like the Lord Jesus. And as you get there, you want more and more and more. Don't you think that's what David Brainer was telling us when he said, I wanted not the, fa- the favor of man to lean upon anymore, for I knew that Christ's favor was infinitely better. So say to yourself, today, the start of the new work week. Father God, show me afresh that Jesus is infinitely better than anyone or anything.